Hey guys, welcome to Trinity Church Online. For more information, please visit us at ourtrinity.org or you can find us on Facebook at Trinity Church of Wheat Ridge or even on Instagram at Trinity Church CO. No matter where you are today, we are glad that you have joined us here. Hey, uh, let's give thanks to Derek and Andrea. You know, uh, not that they want that praise, but you know, you go by the office and uh, you'll see Derek and he's in there working on the songs and putting together the, the music and stuff for today. And Andre with a little one on the way and, and doing that, you know, I just really appreciate uh, the labor of love that they're giving to the Lord for that. And thank you for your prayers. The freeway was great today. I made it in 55 minutes from door to door and I will take that any day. That worked really great. How many of you are excited that God's going to change you through grace? Huh? This is about transformation. This is about grace. And as we move through this, this series, seeing what the Lord can do during the summer, I think we're going to be changed. And I think we're going to be transformed because that's what grace is. This whole series is that which changes us. And we're ready for study number two. We all need grace. There isn't someone that needs more grace than anybody else. And you might say here, man, I sure know that person. Boy, they need a lot of grace. No, we all need a lot of grace. Turn me to Romans chapter 3. We're going to be praying in a minute. But we want to set the foundation here. Romans chapter 3, beginning with verse 22. Romans 3, 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. Would you see that? There's no difference, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified, declared righteous freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Our morality and all of our good deeds are absolutely worthless in the sight of God. They're never going to make us more acceptable no matter how righteous our deeds, no matter how things we're doing for God, it's not going to make us be more acceptable with God. And we're so heavily in debt to God because of our sin, there's absolutely nothing that we can bring even as a partial payment for our living with God, our salvation with God. And we're going to ask four questions today. And you'll see that in your notes as you follow along. What is the biblical view of grace? Just what is the biblical view of grace? Second what is God's offer of grace? What, what is he offering to us? And then, are we going our own way in regards to grace? And how do we respond to grace? So the biblical view, the offer, the way, and the response to grace. Let's bow together. Father, we know that you are a just God and a righteous God. But that justice and that mercy and righteousness all comes to us through grace. So, Lord, as we open up your word, you are the teacher. Through your Holy Spirit and through your Son, Jesus Christ, who is the mediator between us and you, who is standing right now interceding for us and praying for us and how we're living the Christian life. And may we discover that it's all done by grace. So, Lord, we ask that you would take your word and work it deep in our hearts 
that you might change our minds, our thinking, that you might change our will, our choices, that you might change our emotion, how we feel. And then that will change what we're looking at, what we're handling, what we're touching, where we're going, what we're tasting, what we're hearing. So, Lord, we acknowledge you today. We acknowledge that this is your message for us about grace and how to live this thing called the Christian life. So teach us. Help us to apply it that we might begin to see wonderful change and transformation all around us. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first question we want to look at is, what is the biblical view of grace? Now, first of all, I'm going to give you a wrong definition. Let's start out with the wrong definition because so many people kind of see this as a definition. It's God making up. Now, that's, that's the key word right there. It's God making up the difference between the requirements of his righteous law and what we lack to meet those requirements. So we can do all right, but then we're going to come to a point where we're going to lack something and God's going to have to give us grace. Now, what this definition is saying is that no one is good enough to earn salvation. That's good. That's right. But God's grace simply makes up what we lack, and that is not true. It does more than what we lack. It also says that we receive whatever we need to obtain salvation. And that's not true either. Because some of us don't need more than others. And whatever grace we need is going to be ours for the taking. That's not true either. Now you'd say, well, why, why is that true? Why is that not true? Because we need to have a biblical view of grace. And as we go through these four questions today, especially the last three, I trust that we will find that definition of really what grace is all about. Because this whole message series is about living by grace. And that living by grace is the time between when we are justified. We looked at that last week. That's made we are declared righteous the moment you come to faith in Jesus Christ. And then over here on the far end, we have glorification. One day when we meet Jesus face to face, our bodies are going to be changed. Now in between our being justified, declared righteous, and being glorified is this whole space of time that we call sanctification or living by grace. And that's what this series is all about. We're going to leave justification here today, and eventually we might get on to glorification. But how in the world do we live between those two things? It is a grace grace sequence it is not grace and then works and then grace it is grace grace sequence we enter the christian life by grace we live the christian life by grace and we will leave the christian life by grace so now before we can talk about living by grace we got to make sure because we're going to assume from this message on that everyone that's learning about grace has come to uh, experience the saving grace of god You've got to experience the saving grace of God or you'll never experience the benefits of living by grace. So that's the idea that you have trusted Jesus Christ alone for eternal salvation. That at some point in your life, you've given your heart to Christ. You know he's the son of God who died on the cross and he shed his blood to have the forgiveness of sin and you've asked him to come into your life and to transform your life. It all starts there. That's being justified. But we're going to leave that because we're going to assume... Now people may come in here and, and they're not... They're not Christians. They haven't come to faith in Christ. They're going to have a hard time making any application from here on because it's assuming that you've already been justified, and now we're going to begin to look at living by grace. How do we live by grace? Grace is always the same. 
no matter whether God has given to us for salvation, that's saving grace, or whether he's given to us as believers as a way to live by grace, it's all the same grace. So what is grace? What is saving grace? What is living grace if it's all the same? I hope to answer it with the next few questions. Here's the second question. What is God's offer? First of all, what is his offer of grace? I want to go back to what God said to Isaiah. Go back to Isaiah 55 a minute. Isaiah 55. And as we look at Isaiah 55, we're going to read verse 1. And it's very careful that you look at this, because not only did this apply to those who came to faith by righteousness, it all, they needed grace too. Look at uh, uh, Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1. Ho! That's a great greeting. Ho! Yo! You know, we have all kinds of greetings. Yeah, ho! You guys didn't think that was cool. I thought it was. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Who's the living water? Jesus Christ. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. How are you going to buy and eat when you don't have any money to buy and eat? But here's the invitation. Come, you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Now, God is calling us to come to him, but he's addressing those who have no money who have no good works to bring, to pay for what they're going to get. And he invites us to come, but without money and without any cost. So coming to Jesus, we're not going to have to pay for anything. It's not going to cost us anything to come and be invited to come. And notice this, the invitation is addressed to those who have no money, not those who don't have enough money. So God isn't, well, some of you, you know, you got to get this far and then I'll take you the rest of the way. You have no money. You have nothing with which to buy. Grace is a matter of not God making up the difference. That's not what grace is. God doesn't make up the difference between your bank account, what you don't have, and what you have. Well, you got a little already, so I'll only give you this much. You have nothing, I'll give you this much. That's not the way grace works. God's providing all the cost. That's his offer. This is what God's offer is of grace. Come to me, I'm paying it all. It won't cost you anything. All you got to do is come. You come, I'll take care of everything else. So that's his offer of grace. Romans 3, if you go back to Romans chapter 3, verse 22, says there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Later on in other passages between bond and free, male and female, we're all one in Christ. There's no difference between the religious and the irreligious, we all stand in need of grace. There's no difference between the most decent moral person and the most indecent moral person. There's no difference because we've all sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. Now, I want you to turn to somebody next to you or behind you. Would you do that right now? Just make eye contact with somebody, not besides me. Now, this is what I want you to tell them. You're a sinner. Just look at him and tell him, you're a sinner. <laughs> You've missed the mark. Tell them you've missed the mark. <laughs> now, we can laugh at that, but that's exactly where we all are. We're all sinners, and we've all missed the mark with God. We're all the same. We're under sin. Romans 3, 9 says, all of sin, all of sort fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. So I want you to stop and think about this a minute. There's a gap 
between God and man. It's a huge gap because of sin. Now, we assume that most people are trying to close that gap by works, and many are trying to do that. But let me tell you what's even worse than that. There are many people who are not even trying to close the gap. Why? Because they assume what they're doing is already sufficient for them to get to heaven. And if you don't believe that, we used to do this on a college campus. Go ask somebody, why should God let you into my heaven? You'd get all kinds of answers of how they're going to get there. But none of it usually is based on grace or the saving of Jesus Christ. You have no money. It's usually because I'm a good person or I live in America or I'm moral or I'm this or that. They'll give you all kinds of reasons. But you have no money. You have no grace apart from God. So everyone assumes and everybody expects that God's going to accept who they already are. Because, you know, God's a loving God. He's not going to send anybody to hell. That's not what the Bible says. We've all sinned. We've all missed the mark. Something has to happen, and it's called grace. Turn me to Luke 18. Luke chapter 18. Now, I know we're talking about salvation. We're going to go off of that, talk about living in just a little bit, and from here on in. But look at Luke chapter 18. And look at verses 9 through 14. This is beautiful. And he spoke a parable to some. Now notice who he was speaking to. Who trusted in themselves, see, that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as even raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, declared righteous, rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. See, we believe today that we're really not that bad, that we're really good. There's a spark of divine in us, and if left to our own way, we'll find our way. Now, tell me, how's that worked out? Our nation is in the toilet. It hasn't quite been flushed, but it's just about ready to be. And if God doesn't judge us, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. We are that despicable. And yet we think we're righteous, we think we're good, we think we're morally pure and better than other, other people, other nations, whatever. But I want to tell you this, God offers his grace to those who have no money to those who have nothing with which to buy or pay back, no works, no righteousness. So that brings us to the third question. Are we going our own way in regards to grace? If you turn back to Isaiah 53, it's a beautiful messianic passage, and in there it talks about, in verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every way one to his own way. I want to zero in on that, that focus. We've turned every one to his own way. Now, this assumes that originally we were on the right way. How can you turn from something unless you were on the right path and you turn from it? Well, one day before sin in the garden, Adam and Eve were in the right way. 
And God said, you can have whatever you want here in the garden, but this one tree you can't have. And that's what Satan did, came and deceived her. And she gave it and ate, and they ate, and they sinned. And now they knew good from evil, and sin came upon all mankind. We went our own way. Can you imagine being in a place where you can walk and have fellowship with God in the cool of the evening and have a perfect, you don't have to work, you don't have to have uh, labor when you're having a pregnant, wouldn't that be nice? You know, all these beautiful, and then you lost it all. See, that's the essence of sin. It's going our own way. It's the core of sin, missing the mark, falling short. There is no righteousness in us. There is no money that we have with which to buy our way with God. We have no reason to rebel against God either. Stop and think about that. Romans 7, 12 tells us that God's moral law is holy, it's righteousness, and it's good. Why would we rebel against that which is righteous? Why would we, we rebel against that which is good? And why would we, we rebel against that which is holy? We rebel for one reason. We're born rebellious. I tell you, that little baby comes out. He's rebellious. She's rebellious from the get-go. You have to tell him, don't do that. Don't touch that. Don't go there. Don't eat that. See, we were born. Now, now I'm going to get into some things that, that the liberals are going to just absolutely cringe at what I have to say today. But let them cringe. We were born with a perverse inclination to go our own way rather than submit to God. Now, some of us don't become sinful, folks. Now, listen very carefully. We don't become sinful because of some unfortunate childhood environment. While others that have a great childhood environment don't sin. So all we have to do is provide the right environment and we'll solve all of our problems. We were born sinners. We were born with a corrupt nature. We were born with a natural tendency to go our own way. When I was in college about the junior, I think I've told you the story, uh, we had a professor who was dismissed from Colorado State University because of his radical teachings. My brother and I loved him. We, we always had a chance to be able to discuss scripture in class, and he had a cabin up in the mountains up Burst Canyon, and we'd go up there and spend some time with him. I asked him, what do you have to change? What, what, what has to change? He said, you've got to tear the system down. You've got to start all over again. He said, what do you think? I said, I don't think the problem is with our system. The problem is with the nature of man. And he looked at me straight in the eye and he says, your calling is greater than mine. That's when God began to turn my heart away from just becoming a teacher to become a teacher of God's word. Because that's our problem. We are all born sinners. We're born with, with a corrupt nature, a natural tendency to go our own way. You guys want to see something that's going to shock the liberals? Might shock some of you. Let's go to, <laughs> sorry. I oh well. Go to, I always get myself in trouble. Let's go to Psalm 51. <laughs> Let's go to Psalm 51. I want to look at verse 5. Th this is an amazing thing. This ought to speak to all the people that, that believe in abortion. This ought to speak to all of those that, that, that believe in, in right to life. It ought to speak to all of us. But I'm going to say that's not what I'm going to use this passage for. Uh, I'm going to use it for something else. But Psalm 51, verse 5, this is what he says. Behold, I was brought forth in sin, in iniquity. Notice this. And in sin my mother conceived me. 
David was a sinner. He was sinful while still in his mother's womb. He had not yet performed a single act, either good or bad, and he was in his mother's womb before she even conceived him a sinner. Now, I want to tell you something, folks, and here's going to come to a shock. Children are not born innocent. Children are not born innocent and then corrupted by their environment. I'm sorry, that's not what the Bible says. There are no innocent children. So what we say today, well, all we have to do is give them the right environment, they're going to be okay. No, you can provide the best environment, they're still sinners. In need of grace. So they are not born innocent and then corrupted by their environment. They're born sinful and in need of grace. So whether you're a decent person or an obvious transgressor doesn't matter. It makes no difference. We're all born in a state of rebellion against God, and we love to compare ourselves. Well, I'm not like this man, just like the Pharisee. Well, I'm not as bad as this guy. I'm not this. I'm not that. You know, I don't care what you can say. You're still a sinner in need of grace. Now, in going our own way, we also have another problem here, and that is we have a shallow view of sin. And I tell you, it's getting shallower and shallower. The longer we live on earth, our, our nature of sin. It used to be that things were even illegal are now legal uh, and there's no, no, no law against it. You used to be able to go to prison for some of the things we are letting them out of prison for. Our shallow view of sin. God takes our sin more seriously than we do. And I'll tell you, we ignore God. Now, now listen very carefully. I'm going to tell you how we ignore God in regards to this. See, we resist the rightful prerogative of the ruler of the universe and the commander of our life to command any obedience from us. We resist it. And yet he's the God. We say no to an absolute holy and righteous God. We say no to God. We say his moral laws, which are a reflection of his character and are not worthy of our obedience. We're saying, my character is better than God. God doesn't know what I need. See, sin is more than a rebellious attitude. It is our state of heart. It is our nature. It is our state of condition and being. We are sinners. We're born that way. It's who we are. That's why if something doesn't change that, it's like a car that's parked on a railroad track and it's stalled and it can't get off the track and the train is coming. To make no decision to get out of that car, you've made your decision. You're going to eternity lost. See, you've got to make a decision to get out of your car, to get out of your nature, to get out of this rebellion against God. And let me tell you, we think, oh, man, I, I got saved. This is why we're going to start next week looking at living. Well, I got saved, and I got my fire insurance in my back pocket, so now I can live any way I want to live. Don't count on it. Don't count on it. See, the result of our rebellion 
the result of our shallow view of sin is, is the fact that this isn't just making up the difference between our goodness and our badness. It's not like weighing the scales, this is the good stuff, this is the bad stuff, you know. That's not the way, the way God operates. God justifies, he declares righteous those who do not seek him. He justifies and declares righteous those who do not ask for him. Why? Because it's all based on his merit. Let's go back to Romans chapter 10, verse 20. Are you with me? No, you're not with me. I hope you're with God. You don't have to be with me, but you better be with God. And I mean really living with him and understanding what we're saying here. Look at Romans chapter 10, verse 20. Revelation chapter 10, verse 20 says, But Isaiah is very bold when he says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made, uh, did, did not seek me. I was manifest to those who did not ask for me. By the way, you didn't ask for God. You didn't seek God. He sought you. He drew you by His Spirit to that moment. And at that moment, we have a choice to make. But God drew us to that point of making a decision of our will. And until we declare our total bankruptcy before God, we'll never experience the grace of God. See, some of us will never experience the grace of God because we don't think there's anything wrong with us. Even as we begin, we get so righteous and pious in our Christian life, we think there's nothing wrong. I don't need to change. God just accepts me the way I am. Wrong. We need grace for more than just making up the, the deficiencies in our, in our life. We need to provide a remedy to our guilt. We need it for a cleansing from our pollution. We need it to provide satisfaction for his justice. And we need it to cancel a debt that we cannot pay. So this is what grace provides a remedy. It provides a cleansing. It provides a satisfaction. It provides a cancellation. This is what, why we all need grace. Well, how do we respond to grace? That's my last question. How do we respond to grace? We may not have left that up there long enough for you to get all those blanks. You want to go back? You want to go back? Go back. Thank you. Man, you guys are good. We need a remedy. Grace provides a remedy. We're going to look at that over the next few weeks. How does it provide a remedy? A cleansing. How does it provide a cleansing from our pollution? It provides a satisfaction for his justice. Somebody has to bring God's justice to bear because we all deserve to die and to cancel a debt that we cannot pay. So, all right. How do we respond to grace? Let's bring it down. Now, most of us would, would say, you know, Grace makes up more than simply what we lack. We would agree with that. But you know, how do we live? See, see, we know that right here. But we don't live it like, like that. Most Christians live and act as if God's grace only makes up what our good works lack. So God, I'm doing okay, but where I fail, you help me along here. We believe we have to pay by a spiritual sweat. We've got to strive to reduce. We've got to be better. We've got to do better. We've got to get with the program. We get on guilt trip. Churches are great at that. Because if they can keep you there, they can control you. They don't need to control you. Church doesn't need to control you. Pastor doesn't need to control you. God needs to control you. God's blessings are at least partially earned by our obedience and spiritual discipline. No. No. Both saint and sinner needs grace. Because the most conscientious, the most dutiful, the most hardworking Christian, I don't care who they are, 
needs God's grace as much as the most hard-living sinner. You can't live it. You cannot live this thing called the Christian life without grace. You cannot enter it by grace. You will never leave it but by grace. So he said, well, we all need grace. We all need the same amount. That somebody over here doesn't need more than somebody over there. This side, you guys need a little more grace than this side. No. You all need the same amount. God doesn't dispense grace out like, oh, a little over here, a little dab on this one, because this one's doing pretty good, so he doesn't need... No, it's all by grace. See, our merits... Oh, man, I got to get going. Our merits or our demerits do not determine how much grace we need. Because grace doesn't supplement my merits. And grace does not make up for my demerits. Grace considers all men and women totally undeserving and unable to do anything to earn the blessing of God. I'm going to quote Samuel Storms here. And I want you to listen to this quote. Grace ceases to be grace if God is compelled to bestow it in the presence of human merit. Hear what he says? Ceases to be grace if God has to bestow it on the basis of human merit. Grace ceases to be grace if God is compelled to withdraw it in the presence of human demerit. Grace is treating a person without the slightest reference to demerit whatsoever, but solely on the infinite goodness and sovereign will and purpose of God. So grace is not determined by my merit. It is not withdrawn by my demerit. That's a description of grace. It can't be earned by my merit. It cannot be forfeited. You say, well, pastor, if I live this way, I'm going to forfeit grace. No, you can't. You can't. You can't. Well, I have to do this to earn it. No, you can't earn it. See, if you feel today, if you're sitting out there today and you feel that you deserve an answer to prayer, that you deserve a blessing from God because of your hard work and because of your sacrifice, then you're living under works, not grace. My merits don't compel God to bestow more grace. He's given it all he can. He's given everything he can. He's given you all the grace that he can. The bank is empty. God has poured out his grace on you, all of it. He's paid it all. That's his offer. Now, if you despair of experiencing God's blessing, you're not, and I'm not hearing his blessing, I'm not hearing answers to prayer, because of your demerits. Oh, God's not listening to me because of the things that I ought to have done and I didn't do and the things that I didn't, shouldn't have done, but I did them anyway then you're punishing yourself and you're casting aside the grace of God. You with me? My demerits don't cancel out God's grace. Here's a spiritual principle that I put in your notes and I want you to understand it. To the ex uh, extent that you are clinging to any vestige of self-righteousness or putting any confidence in your own spiritual attainments, to that degree, you're not living by the grace of God in your life. So from this message forward, we're going to start talking about how do you start living that way. Grace is not bestowed on the basis of my merit, nor is it withheld or withdrawn on the basis of my demerit. Because otherwise, it all depends on me. If I can earn it, or my bad needs can cancel it out, then it's not God's work, it's mine. 
And that principle applies both to salvation and living the Christian life. No works can earn favor with God. None. We can't stand with one foot on grace and another foot in the, in the, work, in the works world and, and have both. We'll become a split personality real quick. How many of you remember Augustus Topolotti? You know the song that he wrote? I bet you know it. Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide my soul in thee. You know, there's a line in that that says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And then one guy, I'm going to end with this. Abraham Booth, Booth you probably don't know him. Uh, he's an old guy, died in 1806. <laughs> but he was a Baptist pastor in England. This is what he said. Now listen very carefully. Divine grace disdains to be assisted. Let me say that again. Divine grace disdains to be assisted by the poor, imperfect performance of man. Attempts to complete what grace began betrays our pride and offends the Lord, but cannot promote our spiritual interest. Grace is either absolutely free or it's not at all. He who professes to look for salvation by grace either believes in his heart to be saved entirely by it, or he acts inconsistently in the affairs of the greatest importance. Let's bow together. Father, we said last week that trying to understand grace is like a child dipping all the water out of the ocean with a bucket. It's inexhaustible, but I pray that as we get more and more buckets into that water, into that ocean, that we'll get more and more understanding of what grace is all about. Father, it is not given and bestowed on my merit, and God, I want to thank you, it is not withdrawn by my demerit, because it's all your work, it's all where we stand in our position and our identity with you. And Lord, it's time that we begin to live and act in, in grace. And we're afraid to do that because then we think we're going to have license to go out and do whatever we want to do. Well, that's not really understanding grace either. And we'll see that in the weeks to come. Because whom we love, we serve. So Lord, work this. And as we sit around the Lord's table, do we realize that when we lift that bread and eat that cup, or drink that cup, that it's all grace? He gave it to remember him by. And we celebrate it as we're justified, as we're sanctified, and one day glorified and eat it together with him in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.